The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we start our study of God's word, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with God and that includes God the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and guide. He's the one who helps us to understand the things that we study in Scripture. To, he's the dynamic that works inside of us to store the doctrine, to make it usable, and to produce spiritual growth. So Scripture teaches that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So we have a perfect solution in 1 John 1, nine that if we... Confess, admit, acknowledge our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the option to use 1 John 1, 9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's great to be able to come together this evening to study your word, to be refreshed by the eternal truths of your word, to have our thinking refined and focused on uh, life from an eternal perspective and what the real issues in life are, to get away from the self-absorbed uh, grind of the day and to focus on things that matter, and things that impact us for all eternity. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you can help us understand these things and challenge us with your word and that we might use that the Holy Spirit would use these things in our own lives to produce spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews six, one through two. And this is where we stopped some three weeks ago. Two weeks we were in Israel. Last week we had that uh horrible traffic accident out here on I ten, so nobody could get westbound very easily. And, in fact, it took me 45 minutes to get about a half a mile from the freeway when I was coming home. And after that, I decided I didn't want to spend two and a half hours trying to get to church. Uh, So we didn't have class last week. Tonight, somebody over a couple of blocks from me over near Blaylock got murdered. And so the police and SWAT team was all out all around the neighborhood. And you couldn't get anywhere westbound on Westview for most of the afternoon. I don't know what I'm teaching I don't know what's going on, but, you know, things are happening to try to prevent any westbound flow out here. But we'll just put it in the Lord's hands. Okay, last time I started talking about baptism and the eight baptisms of Scripture. And I have a note here that as we ended class last week, I was adding up the different baptisms that are in Scripture. And for those of you who can count, I can't. I've never made any bones about the fact that I don't go get along with, with numbers at all. It was my father who was tutoring calculus at the University of Houston when he was 15. I didn't get those genes. I got the liberal arts genes. 
And uh, last time, I think, when I said there are eight baptisms, I listed them and enumerated all seven of them. So I had a note that I posted note I stuck here on the pulpit that when I got back, I would correct that and we'll run through them. We're going to go through them in some detail during the rest of the hour. But there are two categories of baptisms, what are identified as real baptisms, which are dry baptisms, and ritual baptisms, which are wet baptisms. And the five real baptisms are the baptism of Noah, the baptism of Moses, uh, the baptism of the cross, the baptism of fire, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll go through those in detail, look at the passages as we go through the evening. But those are the five, Noah, Moses, the cross, the baptism of fire and the baptism of the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit. And then the three ritual baptisms are the baptism of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus Christ, which though he was baptized by John the Baptist, it's a different baptism because John's baptism was technically repentance for entry into the kingdom. Well, Jesus was perfect. He was without sin. There was no need for repentance on his part. So his baptism was a unique baptism. And then there is believer's baptism identified in the early church. So we'll get into that this evening as well. So let's go back to Hebrews 6.1. And I want to look at some aspects of the exegesis of these first couple of verses that I glossed over the last a couple of lessons. It starts off with a therefore, which, uh, as I always say, we when we see a therefore in the Scripture, we have to see what it's there for. And therefore always connects, whether it's, uh, depend, uh, no matter what the Greek word is, they always connect the previous thought with subsequent thought. So what we're reading in verses 1 through 8 in the first part of Hebrews 6 is directly connected to what the writer stated Back, began to state back in verse 11. As I've pointed out in terms of the structure of Hebrews, you have five basic sections in Hebrews. They, it starts with a teaching or a didactic section that is heavily based on Old Testament scriptures. That was the Bible that most people had. They didn't have all the New Testament yet. By the time Hebrews was written, probably 50-60% of the New Test, Testament was written, maybe a little more. But uh, they were primarily dependent on the Old Testament for their spiritual growth and their spiritual sustenance. That seems kind of odd to us, but that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said to uh, Timothy in that famous passage that we often quote in First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter three, sixteen and seventeen. It says, "All Scripture is God breathed." If you read verse 15, he says that it is by the Scriptures that you came to an understanding of salvation and spiritual life. And, of course, the Scriptures that his mother and his grandmother had to teach Timothy when he was young didn't include any of the New Testament. It was all Old Testament. So it emphasizes how important it is for believers, even in the church age, to know the Old Testament as the foundation and background to to the New Testament. Well, back in 5.11, starting in 5.11 and down through the end of this uh, of, the, of, of 5.14, the end of chapter 5, they are challenged, this group of Jewish Christians who are now uh, beginning to waffle and fade back in their Christian life and revert back to their uh, Judaism instead of pressing forward, 
are challenged and confronted and rebuked by the writer of Hebrews. And he tells them that by now they have become, uh, they should have more uh, difficult doctrines explained to them, but they've become lazy and dull of hearing. And then in verse 12 he says, By this time you ought to be teachers, and you need somebody to teach you again the first principles of the oracle of God. Now I want to hone in on that phrase, because we have a very similar phrase in verse 1 of chapter 6 that, that flows out of this. Chapter 5, verse 12 says, The first principles of the oracles, and the Greek word there is stoicheia, and that indicates the basic ABCs, and it talks about the ABCs of the oracles, that is, the revelation of God. That's talking about Old Testament Scripture. Now, when we, if you skip down to 6.1, there's a slight shift. It's not the same Greek word, even though perhaps your English Bible uses the same word. It shifts from storkeia to arche. Arche indicates the uh, primary or foundational doctrines of Christ, not just the oracles of God, but of Christ. In the last uh, week or so, uh, and previously as I've been working through this passage and consulting various commentaries to see uh, a number of things, as I've seen uh, writers uh, articulate their position, they talk as if 6.1 is talking about the basic principles of Scripture. But it's not. There's a shift there. It goes from the oracles of God in 5.12 to the elementary or the foundational principles related to Christ or about Christ in verse 1. And this is important for us to observe. So the therefore that we see in 6.1 builds on this rebuke that uh, the writer levels against them in 12 to 14, that they have fallen back, they've reversed course, they can't eat solid food anymore, but they need solid food in order to grow, so they need to press on to more advanced doctrines. That's the challenge of 6.1, as you see on the screen. The basic verb here is the verb pharaoh, and here it means to press on or to advance, uh, to press on or to advance. It is a present passive subjunctive, not an imperative, but it's a first-person plural, and in, in Greek you would use a subjunctive mood with a first-person plural to indicate that something that includes both the speaker and the hearer. Let us press on. We all need to press on, not just you, but the writer is including himself in that process. We all need to uh, move forward in the spiritual life. And, of course, the us indicates that both writer and the reader or the hearer are being carried forward by God the Holy Spirit. It is not their power that produces that uh, spiritual advance. It is uh, God the Holy Spirit and that both uh, writer and audience need to be dependent upon God the Holy Spirit. So this is the primary command. It should be in English. We have this uh, participial phrase that gets that gets inserted there between the therefore and the command. So we lose some of the thrust of how this comes across in the Greek. It follows too slavishly the order of the Greek word. It's therefore let us go on to perfection. And the word there, perfection, doesn't mean to be perfect or flawless or sinless. It is the word for 
uh, the attainment of a goal or the idea of maturity. That's the main sense is to press on to maturity. We are to press on to spiritual maturity. That's where life begins in the Christian life. It's not being a child, but it is being adult where you have the capacity to enjoy and work out all of your uh, all the doctrine that you have and live on the basis of the capacity developed through spiritual growth. So the, the command is for all of us to let's move on to spiritual maturity. And it's based on a foundation, and that foundation is that that's Jesus Christ. Now, I want to pull in two cross-references here because they emphasize for us the basis or foundation that we have. First of all, 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is a word that is used here, in fact, in, in 6.1, where it says, Let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. And uh, there it's talking about foundation of repentance. We'll look at it in a minute. But it's uh, that foundation relates to Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus Christ is seen throughout the New Testament as the foundational element for Christianity. Now, having that in our background, and we've studied this, Somehow something fouled up on that slide. Um, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Actually, uh, this is the next element in the phrase I want to look at. Elementary principles. This word here is not the same word that's used earlier and in uh, chapter 5 for first principles, stoicheia. This is the word arche. This is the same word that has the idea of beginning in arche, hain halagas, in John 1 1, in the beginning. It has to do with first things. It's very a similar concept to stoicheia. It's first principles, initial principles, and it talks about the, it's the, it indicates the commencement of something, an action, a state, a process, a beginning. And the main idea is underlined there for you. It's a basis for further understanding of something or a foundation. So when we're talking about ideas or doctrines, it's talking about that which provides your foundation for all other doctrine. And the foundation in the Christian life, of course, is what? It's the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our foundation to understand that he is fully God and fully man. That's who he is. That's his person. Because he is fully God and fully man, he is able to do what he was supposed to do, which is to go to the cross and pay the penalty for human sin. He was That was his mission, and he was fully qualified to accomplish that. In his humanity, he did not sin, as we have studied in Hebrews chapter 4.14. He was without sin, and therefore he is qualified to go to the cross as our substitute. So this is the elementary principles. And then the next phrase is of Christ. And this is one of those interesting little grammar things that probably drives you nuts, but I like to play with. And it's the elementary principles of Christ. Now, in the Greek, this is just a simple genitive. And you have to interpret the genitive. And that's where a certain amount of subjectivity comes into play. There's about 25 different ways or nuances to a genitive in the Greek. 
And, of course, context is going to eliminate about 80% of those, but sometimes you have legitimate options between two, and you have to weigh them, and, and you have to look at each one and say, okay, if it's this, what would that mean? How would that, impl- uh, how would that impact other scriptures, and how would that impact other doctrines? So you have to work out flow charts almost. As to If you, you take option A, that would mean this. That would impact this verse this way, this kind of thing. Option B, you go this way. Option C, you go that way. That's what's involved. Now, this is what's called a, an objective genitive. That means the action flows toward Christ. So it's the elementary principles, or it's the foundational doctrines about Christ, not Christ's foundational doctrines. What's the difference? Christ's foundational doctrines would indicate the basic things that Jesus taught. That's different from basic doctrines about Jesus. And that's what this writer is talking about. He's talking about basic doctrines related to Christianity and the Christian life, which is the person related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it is the foundational things or the foundational doctrines about Christ. So if we were to retranslate this to get the thrust of the first verse, it says, let us press on to maturity. And then we have a participle that I skipped over, leaving, as it says in the New King James, leaving the discussion of elementary things, that leaving is left in somewhat ambiguous the way most translators translate uh, participles. And that's fine. Because in a good translation, any ambiguity in the Greek should be present in the English so that the pastor can interpret. The translator shouldn't be interpreting. Those of you who have an NIV have a translation that has been interpreted by the uh, translator. And like my good friend Dr. Wayne Howe says, it should be called the New International Commentary, not the New International Version because they have uh, adopted a theory of translation called dynamic equivalence, which means you, uh, you make a lot of judgments about idioms and other things and that uh, impact the translation to make it a, a little more easily understood by people. But the more, e- the more you do that, the more the translator interprets as opposed to just translating. So this should read... And interpretation, of course, is a job of the pastor, not the translator. Let us press on to maturity. And this is an instrumental uh, participle or a participle of means, an adverbial participle of means. Let us press on to maturity by leaving the foundational teachings about Christ. See, that's what he's talking about. We have to leave. We have to move beyond the basics. We have to, It's important to get the basics down, to understand the... Uh, essence of God, to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, to understand the person of Jesus Christ in his hypostatic union, to understand the basics of salvation, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not works are completely excluded. To understand basics related to who angels are and who demons are and who Satan is. These are all the basics, but we have to, if you're going to grow and mature as a believer where you have a, a, a deep understanding of the Word of God so that it impacts your life, your thinking in a more profound way, you have to go beyond the basics. You have to press on. And that's what he is saying. Let's press on to maturity by leaving, by going beyond the foundational teachings 
about Jesus Christ. And then he is going to give us a list of six things. Actually, it's three pairs. Six things which which are primarily understood as characteristic elements of the teaching of the apostles in the early church. They are moving beyond the foundation. So the foundation is Jesus Christ, as we've seen in passages earlier, 1 Corinthians 3.11, Ephesians 2.20, and we're going forward. Katabalo uh, is the word for not laying again. It's a word that is used for laying a foundation. If you were a construction engineer in the uh, ancient world and you were going to lay the foundation of a building, this is the word that you would use. So we press on by leaving the uh, elementary principles, pressing on to maturity and not laying again the foundation. What's the foundation? Six elements in the foundation. And they're paired up. First pair, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Second pair has to do with ritual, teaching about cleansing or teaching about uh, washings or baptisms and laying on of hands. And the third pair is, in the last part of verse 2, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So these three pairs uh, are to be understood in conjunction with each other, and we're going to work through them a little bit. Now, the first group is not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So this presents both the negative and the positive. It is the negative in, in the sense of changing your mind from uh, away from dead works and toward uh, God, faith toward God. The Greek word here for repentance is the word metanoia. Metanoia has the idea of changing your thinking. I like to think it's just change. Now, most people don't like that. When I was up in New England, uh, people would say that that's uh, one of those words that uh, New Englanders hear, and they go, change? We don't change. And uh, a lot of people are like that. They don't like to change. One thing in life is sure, that is we're going to change, and most people don't like it. They want everything to just sort of stay the same. But the Christian life is ultimately all about change. And Romans 12.2 says that we are, to be, we are not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renovation, the overhaul of our thinking. And that's change. That means we have to have the uh, humility, the teachability, and the objectivity to recognize that many things that we hold near and dear may in fact be just dead wrong and that we have to have the objectivity to change and to honestly look at the evidence and, and look at what we believe and what our life is based on and what our life's committed to in order to make those, uh, make those changes. And the foundation for that in the Christian life is change in relationship to what a person thinks gets them approval from God. And every world religion, every system of religion from uh, uh, Eastern religions to various Western religions, uh, primitive religions like animism and spiritism, are all oriented to somehow the individual can make himself uh, presentable to God, acceptable to God, that somehow we can do things that gain God's approbation and approval. And first century rabbinic Judaism 
was no different. In first century rabbinic Judaism, they had all manner of ways in which the individual could make himself presentable to God. And so that's what our writer is talking about here. He summarizes all of those religious efforts as dead works. And that foundation that his readers laid was that they turned away from those dead works of all of the rituals involved in Levitical offerings and sacrifices and everything involved with the, with the temple worship. And, and after having gone to Israel in the last few weeks and just looked at, at uh, been up on that temple mount and looked at the drawings and the models of what the, the temple was like and how massive it was and enormous and what an just what an impression that would make on uh, the individual who wanted to get close to God that for these priests to have turned completely away from all of that uh, pomp and circumstance and all of the ritual and all of the uh, works that were involved in that and to just simply trust in Christ was a major effort. You can see why that would be very difficult for them to turn their back on all of that in the centuries of the tradition that were all wrapped up in rabbinical Judaism. But they were to turn from the dead works, change from dead works, and turn toward God, faith toward God. So we have to make a couple of points here related to repentance. First of all, repentance is never a mandate for salvation. It's never a mandate for salvation. It's implicit, though. And what I mean by implicit is whenever you trust Christ as Savior, you have changed from trusting one thing to something else. So in that sense, there is uh, an implied repentance. But what you normally get from a lot of people is that you have to repent or feel sorry for your sins or have some element of remorse. That is not what the Bible talks about. In fact, the Gospel of John doesn't mention the word uh, repent one time. And John was written, according to John chapter 20, verse 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this is the gospel that is written with the primary objective of teaching you about who Jesus is so that you can believe on him and have eternal life. And it never mentions the word repentance as something that is necessary uh, for salvation. Furthermore, we know that in the light of John the Baptist's uh, ministry, it was a vital part of his message. Matthew 3.11, he says, As for me, I baptize you by means of water, literally, by means of water for repentance. Uh, a change, but he then says, "But he who's after, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." See, right away we see three baptisms in that one statement: John's baptism, the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, and the baptism by means of fire. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So, repentance was part of the message of John the Baptist, but that related to what audience? To Jews. See, there seems to be this emphasis that in talking to Jews, there had to be a specific emphasis on this repentance from the religious ritual and the religious attempt to impress God. So that had to be 
had to be emphasized. And it is in passages such as uh, Acts uh, 20, verse 21. And there Paul is recounting the way he has uh, uh, evangelized Jews and Gentiles. And he says that his ministry was characterized by testifying or witnessing to Jews and also to Greeks, that is, Gentiles. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting way of setting that up, that that's what he emphasized. There needed to be a change of thinking about God, moving from a position of atheism or polytheism to a belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity and the one who paid the penalty for all of our sins. Other passages in the book of Acts also use this phraseology of repentance. For example, in Acts 3.19, Peter, in his second sermon in the book of Acts, uh, when he has explained the gospel, he then challenges the people, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." So repentance is part of that message. Who is he addressing? Again, he is addressing a primarily Jewish audience, that there needed to be a change. Because Why? They just rejected Jesus as Messiah. So there needs to be a reversal. And in fact, there's an interesting aspect to this verse. The times of refreshing was code word for the millennial kingdom. And so it appears that even as late as Acts chapter 3, when Peter is preaching the gospel to the Jews, there is this potential, this contingency, that if even then, if they would respond and turn to Jesus and accept him as their Messiah, that the kingdom would come and that this would void the a fifth cycle of discipline that would come and that did come in 70 AD but there's at least that contingency that if in that interim period between 33 AD and 70 that if the Jews had turned and accepted Christ then the millennial kingdom would have come now that kind of boggles our minds because uh, we think that's sort of what if history but see what that supports is a view that there's real contingency in the plan of a sovereign God. And that has to be treated as legitimate contingency. And you had a great study, I think, on uh, Arminianism and Calvinism from uh, Jim Myers while I was gone. And you see, this is the problem with Calvinism. It is in Calvinistic theology, they just want to reject the fact that there's any contingency. They, their God is too small to, to deal with real contingency that we believe that God is large enough and great enough to still bring about his purposes uh, no matter what his creatures decide. He is so great that he can still bring about uh, his desired ends however the human volition goes. Okay, another passage. Hebrews 9.14 is a passage that also mentions dead works. And I just wanted to put this up here where he says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This was a major issue for this particular audience. 
they were wanting to go back to those dead works of, of ritual and legalism to try to impress God. But as he says in Hebrews uh, 6, verse 1, he says, we're not going to again lay the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith directed toward God. And we come to the second pair that's mentioned here. Uh, Both of these have to do with uh, ritual in the Christian life. Remember, and this is a very important thing to understand in terms of interpretation of this passage. There's a lot of debate over uh, over just what is meant by uh, the terms that are used here. The uh, New King James translates it the doctrine of baptisms. If you're looking at New American Standard or NIV, uh, NIV will buy you a new Bible. Uh, if you're looking at one of these other translations, it may have washings there instead of baptism. And there's some debate here. Is this talking about? Um, is this talking about their Jewish experience, or is this talk, talking about their post-salvation doctrine? If it's post-salvation, the primary idea would be baptisms. If it's talking about what was going on before. Uh, in their rabbinic Judaism, then the idea would be would be washings, and there's a lot of debate over that. But it seems to me that the most important element of this passage for our interpretation is that we're talking about the elementary, the foundational doctrines about Christ. So we're, we must understand that whatever else is being said here. It's talking about that which relates to Christian doctrine, not false rabbinical theology. So let's look at what happens here. A lot of interesting things in this passage, and I'm sure I don't have as great a control on this as I, as I would like or as you can, but it's, it's somewhat challenging. It's Hebrews 6, 1 to 8. It's one of the most debated sections in all of Scripture. The doctrine of baptisms, literally teaching about baptisms. Now, the Greek word that is used here is that top word that you have on the slide. It's the Greek word baptismos, with that M-O-S ending. This is a noun from the verb baptizo, and M-O-S denotes the uh, any act. Whenever a noun ends with M-O-S, it denotes the acts as a fact, something that has happened, a factual act. And the other word that is used in various passages related to baptism is the noun baptisma. So you're looking at an MOS ending or an MA ending. And the difference is that MOS ending looks at the act as a fact, whereas a baptisma, the MA ending, looks at the result of the act. As a result of that, in the New Testament, the MOS ending is used for the ceremonial washings of the Jews. It's only used about, outside of Hebrews, it's only used two other times in the New Testament. So that's that's a difficult thing to look at because if we're talking about foundational things related to Christ, how does this washings, ceremonial washings of uh, the rabbinical theology influence that? Uh, it, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. On the other hand, the other word that I mentioned here, baptisma, with the M-A ending, 
is the word that is always used in passages related to either the baptism of John the Baptist or the baptism of Jesus or believer's baptism. There's a consistent use here. Now, there's some debate over Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, and, uh, but that's based on a textual uh, variant, so you do have a problem there. I thought I had those passages there. Mark 7, 4 says, uh, when, they do, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. That's our word. Unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received uh, in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So that has to do with the, the normal act of washing. Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, that phrase is clearly talking about this baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. But there are many manuscripts that use uh, baptis uh, mas there. Actually, it's a textual problem because the majority of manuscripts use baptisma, which makes sense, fits with the consistent usage of the text. So we can't really include Colossians 2.12 in this use. And then the other two places in the New Testament where baptismos is used is our passage, Hebrews 6 2 and Hebrews 9 10. So there's really not a lot of data here. That's the point I want to make. People jump to certain conclusions on the data of one verse outside of the writer of Hebrews. And he may be nuancing this word in a special way because of the way it's used and understood within that Jewish background. We saw when we were uh, in Israel that this emphasis on ritual washings was, uh, was extreme. I'm going to pull up a couple of slides here. This is t- from uh, outside the uh, what would have been the temple wall at the in the second temple period in the first century uh, before Christ and first century during the, the period of Christ and this these I'm going to show you some pictures of what are called mikvah you can read it in the uh, inscription perhaps the the Hebrew word was mikvah m i q v e h and the plural would be mikvot and outside of the of the temple, well, see, I'm not very adept at this program, so, okay, outside of the entryway to the temple, not inside the temple wall, but outside the entryway, what was called the Holda Gates, named after Holda the prophet as mentioned in the Old Testament, as, in, as anyone coming to the temple would do, they would bring their sacrifice, but before they would even enter the temple precincts, they would go through a process of physical cleansing, and this was stressed uh, heavily in rabbinic theology. When we were at Qumran, there were the mikvot everywhere, places for ceremonial washings, not just, they weren't swimming pools, uh, just a place to sit and have a hot tub. In fact, they had a sauna up there in, uh, at Masada. We need to understand that it was 115 degrees when we were up there on Masada, and we're trying to figure out why anybody would want to sit in a sauna when it's just a, when it's 115 degrees. This is a picture of one of the mikvah outside the entryway to the temple. And I keep hitting that button wrong. There we go. This is a broader shot. And looking across the front, the wall is to the upper left where the holdegates were located. And you can identify here a number of 
mikvah. There is one here, there's one here, there's one just uh, down here in front of where I'm standing. Uh, here's another one right here. Uh, there's two here. And there's over 30 of these mikvah across the front of the entryway to the temple. Now, the interesting thing is, as we'll see in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and there were 3,000 who responded in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, they immediately baptized them. Now, some folks would say, if they didn't have this information from them, where in the world are they going to baptize 3,000 people that day? Well, they had 30 baptismal pools right there in front of the Hulda gates, and they had uh, 11 apostles to do the baptisms. And so it was logistically very possible for them to baptize 3,000 people in that particular day. That's only about, what, 250, 275 per apostle. And they had, you know, that doesn't take that long if, you're, if you have a good uh, assembly line going to get all of those believers baptized. Here's another shot of the mikvah. It steps going down, and the, uh, the, the men would come, and there was privacy there, and they would take off their robe, and they, so there would be nothing between their skin and the water. And this was ceremonial cleanse. They would dive into the water and come up. They would put their robe back on, and then they would take their sacrifice and go into the temple. This shows the importance and the emphasis on washing in the in the Jewish ritual under rabbinic Judaism. Now that brings us to the point where we need to study what the New Testament teaches about baptism. See the odd thing that we see here in this in this verse is not only does it use a different form, this form for, for uh, usually used for washings or ceremonial washing, but it's in the plural. Now, one of the things that I have come to appreciate over the years is that in theology, often you have people pair up and one person takes one side on one issue and somebody takes the other side and they sort of square off and, and uh, it's either this position or that position. When, in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, both are true. In other words, a word like baptismas here may be used because it is general enough to where it is, it's an umbrella term that would include both the ceremonial washings of the, uh, of, of the rabbinic teaching and the baptisms of the New Testament. That would be the two, the, 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 sense of the plural there that there is this and including the idea of repentance from the ceremonial cleansing to the uh, true rituals as taught in the New Testament so we have to look at these different baptisms and we began this last time and I gave you a rundown on what they were and reviewed them this morning and now I reviewed them in the introduction now I want to go through them in a little more detail First point is definition. Always important to define our terms. Baptism is one of those doctrines that's a continual source of confusion and distortion, especially as it's related to both believers' baptism and baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
the streets have run with the blood of Christians over this doctrine of baptism. For example, during the period of the Reformation, after Martin Luther uh, began the Reformation, nailing the 95 disputation points called theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg, uh, there was, he began a movement where there was a shift away from the legalistic teaching of Roman Catholicism. But not everything that Rome taught that was wrong got left behind. Many of the reformers continued to hold to a certain amount of allegorical interpretation, especially as it related to prophecy. They also held to uh, baptism by uh, sprinkling, and they held to infant baptism. And they still held to this idea of of the the, uh, uh, merger of church and state. And that became a major issue. See, since the time of the Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity, there had been this identification of Christianity with the political with the political state. And as a result, entry into the church became identified with entry into citizenship. So they become one and the same thing. How do you enter into the church? You enter into the church through infant baptism. That's also the same time you enter into citizenship in the state. Therefore, to come along and say that infant baptism is not relevant or is invalid is to also make a political statement. That's treason. So this was taken very seriously. And in the Reformation, you have the example of the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, who... uh, had three of his students come to an understanding that the Bible taught that that baptism should come only after a person had put their faith alone in Christ alone, that infant baptism meant nothing. And they were tried for heresy, and they were convicted, and they were sentenced to death by drowning. How, how ironic. Zwingli just had him held under. They wanted to be baptized and held under the water, so he had him held under until they died. But that was how people felt about these things, how they believed, and the, theology mattered. And there were uh, hundreds, if not thousands, that were martyred for uh, these convictions of Baptists. Now, I often ask the question, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? I've asked that question of Baptist friends of mine. I did an internship at a Southern Baptist church when I was in seminary, and I asked the pastor, I said, do you know what makes a Baptist a Baptist? And he, I don't know what his answer was, but he was wrong. In fact, I've only met one man who knew what makes a Baptist a Baptist. And interesting, he was not a believer. He was a Jewish urologist, and he was the only one who knew the answer to this. There are two things that make a Baptist a Baptist. And not, neither one of them have anything to do with Jesus Christ. Number one is a belief in the separation of church and state. And number two is a belief in baptism by immersion. That's it. That's what makes a Baptist a Baptist. You say, well, wait a minute. All the, all the Baptists I know believe Jesus died for their sins. They believe in the Trinity. And they think you have to believe these things to be a Baptist. Well, see, you've been fooled too. See, Baptists will tell you right off the bat as soon as you try to pin them on a doctrine that they are a non-credal people. You know what that means? That means there's no doctrinal statement that you have to affirm in order to be a Baptist. And they'll fight and die for that. And they have. 
And that's why the Southern Baptist Convention for the last 30 years have been fighting this battle over the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. They couldn't appeal to a doctrinal statement that all Baptists had to affirm in order to be Baptist, saying you have to believe in the infallibility of Scripture. So they had to fight it out with awful political infighting and everything else within the denomination. And so uh, that becomes an issue. So baptism has been the source of quite a bit of contention and fighting over the years. But guess what? The reason I'm saying this is because I heard one pastor not long ago say, you know, I'm not sure what we ought to teach about baptism because it's just been so divisive. Like the gospel of grace hasn't been divisive. Like dispensations haven't been divisive. Like pre-trib rapture hasn't been divisive. Like the Trinity hasn't been divisive. Like tongues hasn't been divisive. I mean, everything is divisive. We have to teach what the Word of God says. Every doctrine at some point or another, uh, you have one person who takes one view and another person takes another view, and sadly they think the other is the enemy and they start fighting each other instead of uh, the real enemy. So... We have to pay attention to what the Scripture teaches. The word baptism is from the Greek verb baptizo, which means to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. It is an action that signified the identification of someone with an action, a person, an object, or a new status in life. Now let's talk about that a minute. The literal meaning of the word meant to dip, plunge, or immerse. You would take a piece of cloth and you would immerse it in, a, in the dye and bring it out. You would make sure that the dye permeated all of the fabric so that it would be of a solid color uh, throughout. That was one way in which the word was used. It has a literal meaning of, of immersion, of dipping. But it was also used in a figurative sense. And the figurative sense indicated identification with someone, just as fabric would be placed in the dye, it's identified with the color. So when you took certain objects and dipped them or immersed them in something, uh, it identified them with whatever it was they were immersed with. For example, in the uh, Greek army, Xenophon, in the 4th century B.C., described how new recruits in the Spartan army dipped their spears into pig's blood before going into battle. This identified the spear as having been changed from being a hunting spear to now being a warrior's spear. Euripides in the 5th century B.C. used the word to describe a sinking ship as the ship sank. Its character or nature was changed as it became the wood became identified with the water. It no longer floated, but it sank. So that is the idea. There's, there's a literal meaning to dip, plunge, or immerse, and a figurative sense, what it indicated, which is identification with something. And that is primarily how the word is used in scriptures. It emphasizes an identification with something. And there are, as I said earlier, eight baptisms in the scripture. Three of them are ritual water baptisms. I'm going to mention them first, but we will study them last. The three ritual water baptisms are, first of all, the baptism of John the Baptist. This is when John the Baptist identified the person who is going into the water with the kingdom of God. That's what he's doing. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he would take that person and he would immerse them in water. And this was an identification of that person with the kingdom of God. 
This baptism was unique to John and to his ministry. Now, we have to remember this. I'll remind you of it a few times because this is important because toward the end of the Apostle Paul's uh, ministry, when he is, uh, in, I guess it's not the end of his ministry, between his second and third uh, missionary journeys, which is a long way into his ministry, early 50s, uh, about the same time he's writing the epistle to the Corinthians, he's in Ephesus. He spent two years in Ephesus, and he had a Bible school in Ephesus. They met at a uh, rented space in the school of, a, of, of, I forget the name now, but they had a regular meeting there at a school of one of the philosophers there, and he trained uh, men to teach the Word and to evangelize, and they went out all over the Roman province of Asia. That's that map we see every Sunday morning when we're studying the seven letters to the seven churches. And they started churches all over the Roman province of Asia. Now, while he was in Ephesus, there was a group of, of uh, disciples of John the Baptist. They hadn't heard anything about Jesus, the Messiah, the crucifixion. They hadn't heard any of that. They just knew that they had been to Israel probably to go to Passover one year. And there they heard John the Baptist, and they were baptized with John's baptism. And then they left, and they went back home to Greece. And they didn't hear anything else after that. Then Paul comes along, and Paul is teaching about Jesus Christ. And so they come in Acts chapter 19. Well, while we're talking about this, let's just turn to Acts 19. Because I want to emphasize this. Beginning in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. See, they haven't really heard any of the basics of, about Christ at all. All they know is, the, is what John the Baptist taught them. And Paul said to them, Into what then were you baptized? Now, would that be the first question you would ask them? Wouldn't have been the first question I would have asked them. But obviously, this is an important issue because it's the first question that the Apostle Paul asked them. So, into what baptism then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed or truly baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. Future tense. That is on Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying here is John taught a classic Old Testament gospel that God is going to provide a Savior in the future. And so their belief was a future-oriented belief in a future-coming Messiah. That made them Old Testament saints. These are believers. I think I misstated that in the last lesson, so that's one reason I'm emphasizing. They are believers. They're Old Testament saints. But... The dispensation has shifted. They're now in the church age. Salvation has been accomplished. That Messiah they had believed on that would come has come and has completed the payment for their sins. So Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were what? Baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's the first thing that Paul did, was he said, you haven't been baptized with the right baptism. In other words, it's important to be baptized 
in the name of Jesus. So let's just march right down to the water and get baptized right now. This is and this happens, friends, at the same time that he writes that letter to the Corinthians. Let me jump over there briefly because this is often distorted and misunderstood. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 14. Uh, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. See, what Paul is saying here is that the Corinthians had used baptism as a, as a means of creating division. Some of them were saying, you know, I got baptized by Paul. I'm better than you. Others were saying, well, I got baptized by Peter. Or I got baptized by Apollos. They were using that as a point of division. They, even in the early church, they're already abusing the, and misunderstanding the doctrine of baptism. Now, Paul isn't, doesn't say, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you. See, there's a big difference. He's not saying baptism isn't in effect today. He's not saying, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. He's saying, I thank God I didn't baptize many of you. That's the thrust of what this is saying. Because if I had baptized more of you, you'd create even more division. But at the same time he's writing this to the Corinthians... He is telling these disciples of John in Acts 19, you, got, you didn't get baptized with the right baptism yet. Let's immediately go down to the water and get baptized in the name of Jesus. So see, you can't use 1 Corinthians or misuse 1 Corinthians as an argument that baptism wasn't in effect or Paul didn't believe it was important. Acts 19, written at the same time as first, which happened at the same time he writes 1 Corinthians 1, is emphasizing the importance of of believers' baptism. So they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then in verse 6 we read, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Well, what's happening here? Why do they speak with tongues here? And I'll tell you, remember, you have to remember, Acts is a transitional book. What you have in the book of Acts is three groups of people that speak in tongues. Who are they? First of all, it's the Jews that are saved on the day of Pentecost. Then, the second group is the Gentiles with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 when Peter gives them the gospel. And the third group is here. Why? Because these represent three groups of people, Jews, Gentiles, and Old Testament saints. And all three of them have to enter the church the same way. And that is under the authority of the apostles. And that's what this is indicating. In each one of these instances, an apostle is present. And that's why it's referred to as a Jewish Pentecost in Acts 2. And some refer to Cornelius as a Gentile Pentecost. And this the same way. It's, it's not that everybody is speaking in tongues. It's that this shows that these three events are tied together and they're all under the authority of an apostle, and it's showing that there is only one church, and that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's no division in the church because they're all going to be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and entered into one body. Now, we'll get into that uh, next time when we deal with the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
But that's why this is important, why we start with the first baptisms, the baptism of John the Baptist, and you have to understand that to understand what's going on in Acts 19, and that impacts our third type of water baptism, which is believer's baptism. But I skipped over the second one. first one is John's baptism. The second one is the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus came down to the Jordan at the beginning of his ministry, he came to John to be baptized. Now, he's not being identified with, the, with repentance in the kingdom like everybody else. He is being identified with the Father's plan and purpose for his life. That's what that is. It marks the beginning of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's that entry into that public ministry and his identification with the Father's will. And so when he comes down to the Jordan and John the Baptist uh, immerses him in the Jordan, it is at that time that you have a voice from heaven, God the Father speaking, saying, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in in the form of a dove. It is an audio-visual demonstration of God's authorization of Jesus Christ in his public ministry. And so that is the second type of baptism. And the third that's mentioned in the New Testament is the baptism of believers. This is indicated in Acts 2.38, Acts 2.41, Acts 8.36-38, and Acts uh, 19, uh, verse 6, uh, 5 and 6, when they are baptized in the name of Jesus. Now these three... Water baptisms involve four factors. The person who performs the baptism. Now, the term that we're going to use, I'll review this again. I just want to hit it real quick. The person that performs the action, is we'll call that the agent of the baptism. The agent. It's going to have a grammatical significance when we get there. That's the agent. The element that's used provides the identification. We see water. We see fire. See the Holy Spirit, that's the element that provides the uh, identification. In ritual baptism, it is the water in all three instances. The third factor involved is the person who is being identified with something. And fourth, there is a new status that the person's identified with. With the Old Testament, I mean, with the um, person going to John the Baptist, he's identified with the kingdom. With, the, with Jesus, he's identified with the Father's plan. And with the believer, he is now identified with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he's identified. And there's a connection between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and water baptism. And this is what isn't taught and rarely understood. And that's why we have to take time to take each of these apart piece by piece so we can put it all together. And we'll come back and start looking at the real baptisms. The five real baptisms are, are uh, all dry baptisms. And we will look at those next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these things, to understand all of the complexities of your revelation and your word, to understand just how you work in different dispensations and in our lives Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we're studying. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.